So in the last half century, some of the most significant and astounding inventions ever developed in human history have been made right here in the United States of America. From the Hubble uh, telescope to the iPhone to Google, from the MRI to the personal computer, America is a land of ingenuity. But of all of these, none of them epitomize the American dream of endless choice at low prices like the all-you-can-eat buffet. That was invented right here in the United States. In fact, it was invented in the mid-1940s on the Las Vegas Strip, no less. The all-you-can-eat buffet promises endless options and freedom to choose what you want and as much as you want. No limitations. Journalist Zachary Crockett writes this. For a small fee, you're granted unencumbered access to a wonderland of gluttony. It's a place where saucy meatballs and egg rolls share the same plate without prejudice. Where a tub of chocolate pudding finds a home on the salad bar. (laughs) You're like, what's it doing there? It's a buffet. There's no rules. It's where variety and quantity reign supreme. Now, if you're like me, when you go to the buffet, few can resist the temptation to go back for seconds. Some dare to go back for thirds, and only the brave go back for fourths. And none can resist the dessert island where there's something for every single sweet tooth. And the result is that in one sitting, you eat more than a full day's worth of calories in one meal. Now, when it's all done, what happens? You regret all those options. You regret the freedom that you had. You you think about yourself making foolish choices. What seemed uh, only an hour ago like, like like a wonderland has become a wasteland. And you wish you hadn't taken advantage of all those options. See, we expect to be satisfied. And yet afterwards, as we waddle to the car, we're disappointed We're dissatisfied, and yes, even distended. Our stomachs are bloated. You like that alliteration? I was proud of that one. Not of the chocolate pudding. See, there's a subtle lie in every buffet. Endless options and endless choices at minimal cost to ourselves will bring lasting satisfaction. The buffet always overpromises and underdelivers. Well, this morning we're picking up back in the story in John's gospel, and it's immediately following the feeding of the multitude. See, everyone that day ate until they were filled, and the next day we find out they are back for more. They want Jesus to provide another buffet spread before them. But instead of performing another miracle, Jesus begins to speak to the crowd in order that they might be further fed. But this time, he's not looking to fill their bellies. He's looking to nourish their souls. And when it comes to feeding the soul, there is no buffet of endless options. We'll find there's only one source of eternal soul-satisfying food, and it is the bread of life. This morning, John 6 is going to teach us three things about the bread of life. The first thing we're going to learn is that the bread of life is eternal, not perishable. It's eternal, not perishable. The second thing we're going to find is that the bread of life is given, it's not earned. If you want the bread of life, it's something you receive as a gift, not something you work to earn. And finally, the bread of life 
is a person, not a program. We're going to find that the bread of life is not a program to participate in, but it's a person to receive. So let's start together in verse 25 to see that the bread of life is eternal. John writes this, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? So John is setting the scene for us. It's the next day, and, they, and he tells us that the disciples had taken the only boat that was there, and they had left. And if you remember, just before that, Jesus meets the disciples on the sea by walking on the water. And what they had seen, the crowd, is that Jesus stayed behind when the disciples left. Now it's the next morning, everyone's waking up, and they're looking around, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And it's around that time that boats from Tiberias arrive, and they're asking the, the, the people on the boat, hey, is Jesus in Tiberias? And they say, no, he's not there, and he's not there where they are, and so they get in those boats, and they head to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Now the reason they go to Capernaum is because Capernaum was kind of like headquarters. It was uh, like a hometown for him at this point in his ministry, and so they knew that Jesus was often there and so they go looking for Jesus now when they find him they're curious well how if there were no boats for you to get here how did you get to this place let's see how Jesus responds verse 26 and Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. If you notice there, Jesus doesn't answer their question. He skips right over the question about how he got there, and instead he wants to speak to their motives. You see, anytime Jesus is uh, performing these miracles, he's concerned not just to relieve physical um, suffering and physical need, but he also wants to speak to the spiritual need. And now on this next day, he draws out their motives. They're not coming to him to inquire about the meaning of the miracles or the significance of the signs. They're coming to him for another meal. See, it would have been entirely appropriate for the next day for them to go, Jesus, tell us what that means about you. We see that you can do these great things. What does that tell us about who you are and what you've come to do? Instead, they're looking for another meal. They want Jesus to give them their daily bread. Now remember, this is the same crowd who just yesterday wanted to make him king after he provided the dinner buffet yesterday. But their vision for the kingdom is very, very narrow. Its focus is primarily on the physical and the materialistic. They're focused on the, the here and now, right? After he provides a, a, a table of, of bread and fish, they're going, you're a great king. We would love to have you as our king. They loved the show. They loved the bread and the meat. If you're familiar with history around this time, remember they're controlled by 
um, the Roman Empire, um, the Roman Empire had this program. Anytime the Caesar's approval ratings would drop, you know, when there'd be the polls and they'd kind of find out, hey, the people aren't that into you right now, they would open up the arena and have these things called bread and circuses. And what they would do is they'd, they'd open up the arena, everyone would get a loaf of bread as they came in, and they'd put on a great gladiatorial show. And what they would find is at the cost of a show and a loaf of bread, the approval ratings would go right back up. It didn't matter what the Caesar had done. Hey, give the people a show, give them some bread, and you can quickly turn their approvals uh, where you want them to be. It was enough to buy back the people's favor. Our approval is often bought back at the low cost of bread and a show. And Jesus teaches them about a kind of food that truly satisfies and never perishes. He's not interested in merely giving them a a loaf of bread and a show. He wants to get at what will actually bring about true change in their life and true satisfaction. So he talks about this eternal bread that never perishes. Jesus says there is a food that he can give them that will not perish but will endure to eternal life. Even the bread he gave them yesterday, had it been left out and not consumed, eventually what happens to bread? It gets moldy, it perishes, it doesn't last. But Jesus has a kind of meal, a kind of food, a kind of bread that never perishes, that endures to eternal life. If you've been with us or are familiar with the Gospel of John, you might be thinking about this conversation Jesus had previously with the woman at the well. Remember, he talked about giving her water that would quench her soul, that, 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 it would, uh, that there would be a wellspring created in her that would nourish and satisfy her soul forever. Jesus said he had living water that would quench the ultimate thirst and would become a wellspring from within. And now Jesus is saying, I've got food to give you that endures to eternal life. The living water in John 4 and the eternal bread in John 6 are one and the same. It's two different metaphors to speak to the exact same thing. And here he also says that he's able to give it to them because the Father has set his seal on him. So what he's doing is he's saying, listen, not only can I give it to you, but I'm authorized by God the Father to be the one to give it to you. Now, when he says the Father has set his seal on him, he's alluding to this, uh, to this practice in, um, in monarchical worlds where the king would have a signet ring, right? It'd be a ring, and it would have an emblem on it, and any kind of official documents, they would melt some wax, and they'd put it on the letter, and then he would stick his a signet ring into the, 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 the melted wax, and then when it hardened, you would see the seal. And it was something that only the king had, and so it couldn't be replicated, it couldn't be falsified, and it was a way to be able to authenticate documents, right? It made it official. If the king's stamp was on it, you knew the king's authority, the king's approval was behind this decree. And Jesus is saying, the father has set his seal on me. When I come, I come with the exact same authority, with the approval of God the Father himself. I have authority to act. So not only do I have the power to give you this bread, but I am authorized by God to give it to you. In fact, I've been sent here from the Father to do this very thing. 
Jesus has the authority to give the bread of eternal life that never perishes to all who are hungry and they will be filled. Now, is Jesus saying, don't spend time or effort at the normal everyday realities and requirements of of life? Remember, he said, don't work for food that perishes. So is Jesus saying that every minute of your time should be spent on things that are eternal, so you should quit your job and you should um, stop doing, like feeding yourself, right? No, that's not what he's saying. Eating, working, raising families, going to school, serving with local charities, hanging out with friends, anything you want to fill in the blank, all of those are important. And all of them have their place in a well-designed life. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying don't make those kinds of pursuits the sum total of your life. Notice I said a well-designed life, a well-organized life. So the question becomes, what kind of time and priority and significance are you giving to the things in your life? He's saying don't make the sum total, all of your pursuits, all of your time, all of your concern be for things that are perishable. Because what happens? If you, if you invest all of your time in things that are perishable, at the end of life, you have a perishable life. But a well-designed life understands what's truly important and designs and organizes and prioritizes the things of life um, that match those priorities. Jesus is saying, don't make the sum total of your life focused on merely the here and the now. See, it's so easy, right, to get uh, consumed with the everyday realities of life that we completely neglect what God says is most important. As you plan your days, as you design your life, as you organize it all, you can, you can do so where all of your time, all of your efforts are given to building a life of comfort, a life of satisfaction, and a life of pleasure. Have you ever been so busy on a day where you neglected to eat? I mean, you just went from one meeting to the next, one class to the next, one task to the next, and in your busyness, you even just forgot about the basic things like feeding your body, because it was just go, go, go. You neglect fueling your body that will actually sustain your efforts. What Jesus is saying is we do the exact same thing in our spiritual lives. We go from task to task, job to job, from responsibility to responsibility, from relationship to relationship, from pleasure to pleasure, from thing to thing, and in the busyness of our lives, weeks, months, years go by without ever nourishing our souls. And in our busyness to try to find satisfaction and meaning, we actually neglect the very thing that provides that life and meaning, the very thing that sustains our souls, the very thing that provides true and lasting satisfaction. Because in our very nature, every one of us is hardwired to seek satisfaction and meaning in things that ultimately perish and fade away. You don't have to try to do that. You will do that. You have to try to do the opposite of that. But the reality is is that you and I have been hardwired for eternity. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. The preacher writes this. He has made everything beautiful in its time, and also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What he's saying here is this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. So there's a, a season for everything. The material, the, 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 the here and now is important. He's not saying it's not important. It's beautiful. At the same time, God has placed inside everybody's heart this, this longing for more, 
this longing for eternity, this sense that life continues beyond the here and the now. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes recognizes that we're limited in our ability to grasp all that God has done from beginning to end. We're limited. We're, we're finite creatures. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to enjoy and steward the life that God has given us and do so with eternity in mind. It's a both and, not an either or. Look what Paul David Tripp writes. He says this, and see if you don't hear yourself in this. Everyone hungers for paradise. No one is satisfied with the way things are. So you'll do one of two things. You will either try your hardest to turn your life right here, right now, into the paradise it will never be, and therefore you become driven and disappointed. Or you'll live in this broken world with a rest and peace that comes from knowing that you have a guaranteed place in paradise that is your future. Everyone has one of those two options. You'll, you'll, you'll recognize that the here and the now is not the way it should be, and so you're going to do everything you can, if there is no eternity, to take the here and now and make it as close to paradise as you can. Or if you recognize that paradise is to come, it gives you a kind of uh, a solid foundation, a rest to not be driven towards despair, but to enjoy the here and now, knowing that paradise is a guaranteed promise to come. When you live with eternity in mind, you know that every physical blessing and every physical longing is designed by God to be a sign that points you to the spiritual blessing and spiritual fulfillment that is found in Christ. So when you find a longing in you, you should think there's something right about that and I'm supposed to find its fulfillment in Christ. You will either live today with eternity in mind or you will live today like this is the only eternity you'll ever have. And the difference between those two mindsets is everything. It's everything. If today is all you have, at the end of every day, you should go to bed despairing, thinking that you've lost another day, that this set account of days you have, another one has just fallen off. And a week goes by, and a year goes by, and suddenly time is running out. And you'll be frenetic and frenzied to try to um, get the most you can and, to, and to, to make each day count. Each day is going to be filled with hustle and striving to fix what's broken and to enjoy it before it's gone. But if today is not all you have, if eternity is a guaranteed promise, then each day is freed now for worship and gratitude, faithful stewardship and restful enjoyment. See, it's a both and you can enjoy the life that God has given you and not be so frenzied that this day is all that you have. Jesus is inviting them and us into a life of eternal meaning and purpose. So he says, don't seek food that perishes, but seek the food that endures to eternal life. So friends, what are you pursuing? Are you living with eternity in mind or are you living like today is all you have? Are you seeking the bread that endures to eternal life or are you seeking the bread that perishes? The bread of life is eternal, not perishable. Second, the bread of life is given, not earned. So we pick back up in the conversation in verse 28. Then they said to him, well, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? 
So in other words, they asked Jesus, what must we do in order to do the works that God requires? See, it is so ingrained in humanity that we must work for everything. So they're hearing, okay, you've got this kind of bread that we don't know anything about. What do I have to do to earn that bread? I I want that bread. That sounds great, Jesus. That we miss seeing that Jesus has already said that that kind of bread is something he gives, not something we earn. He said, I will, you can work for bread that perishes or you can receive the bread of eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. But they missed it. They just hear there's more bread and think, I must have to work for that. See, when Jesus told them not to work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, he wasn't focusing on the nature of work itself, but on the goal. He was telling them, don't strive towards that end. Don't make a perishable bread your ultimate goal. He wasn't introducing some novel form of work. Hey, you guys are doing work this way, but you need to do work this way that will gain God's approval. What he was showing them is that their their goal was short-sighted and narrow. They needed to lift their eyes up to eternity. So he's he's done that, and now he's going to talk about the nature of this bread. See, they still think eternal bread is something they have to earn and work for. That's why they ask, what works do we need to do so that we can earn this eternal life? Now, there's two problems with their question. The first problem is this. They assume that if there is some kind of work, that they'll actually be able to do it. So if if God gives them this task list, that they'll be able to knock it out and earn everything that God requires, which is an overestimation of their ability. But that's like you and me. We assume that we have greater ability than we actually do. And second, they've realized that life itself, like your physical life, including even eternal life, is a gift from God. And like all gifts, by its very nature, must be received, not earned. So Jesus tells him in verse 29, Jesus answered him, well, this is the work of God. So it's almost like he's going, okay, if you want to think about it as a work, let me tell you what that work is, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus says, faith is what God requires, not works. It's not some abstract form of faith. It's faith in the one whom God has sent. Did you notice that? He didn't say, this is the work of God, that you have faith. No, no, it's faith in he whom God has sent. It's faith in Jesus. That's what God requires. Look what John Calvin wrote about this verse. He said, faith brings nothing to God. On the, contrary, on the contrary, it sets man before God empty and poor that he may be filled with Christ and his grace. It is therefore a passive work, so to say, which no reward can be paid. And it bestows on man no other righteousness than what he has received from Christ. When we come to God in faith, we bring our nothingness, our emptiness, so that God would fill us with his grace. See, when you work for something, when you go tomorrow morning and you go to work, and, and, and at the end of those two weeks and you get a paycheck from your boss, that paycheck is not a gift, is it? It's been earned. You deserve it. In fact, if they don't give it to you, you can take legal recourse to get what is owed to you, right? It is not a gift. It's payment for a service provided. When you go to work and your boss pays you, you might be grateful that you have a job, That's fine. I think you should be. But your paycheck is not a gift. You have earned that paycheck. You deserve it. But faith is not a work. It is a gift from God. So God does the work. He sends his son 
And we either receive that gift or reject that gift. Anytime you've ever been given a gift, you have an option. I can receive this gift and take it, or I can say, no, thank you. But that's the only thing you can do with a gift. You either receive it or you reject it. And with Christ, we either receive him by faith, or if we reject him, we are saying by our actions, no, thank you. And we may not say it out loud, right? God, thank you for sending your gift. I reject it, right? No one says it like that. But by our actions, by our lives, when we choose uh, to reject Christ, we are doing that based on um, our decisions, even though we don't say it out loud. What we're saying is, I would rather work out salvation on my own. I would rather uh, endure, uh, uh, work for the bread that perishes. I would rather build my own life of meaning. I'd rather create my own standard of morality. I don't want to receive one from you. Faith comes empty-handed to God and recognizes our own poverty and says, God, in my poverty, in my nothingness, God of mercy, would you fill me with your grace and give me the gift of Christ? Calvin concludes his thought, and he says this, For what we have received as his gift, none provides by his own industry. What he's saying is no one works for it. The spiritual food of the soul is the free gift of Christ, and that we must strive wholeheartedly to become partakers of so great a blessing. When I see you out here, I see some very industrious people who are accomplishing all kinds of amazing things out in the world, but that's not how faith works. We do not gain Christ by our industry, by our work, by our striving. We either receive him as a gift or we reject him. At the end of the day, everyone will either trust in their own industry and their own works or they'll trust in the gift of Christ. Now, let's see how they respond to Jesus' statement. Verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So let's stop right there. So they say, okay, if we're gonna believe in you, then isn't it uh, like natural that you would perform some sign to verify that you, are the op- that you should be the object uh, of our faith, that you've been sent from God? Now, don't miss this. Remember, this is the same crowd who's already received a sign. He's already done something miraculous. He's just fed thousands of people with what amounted to a first century Lunchable. A little boy's lunch, he fed thousands of people with leftovers. The leftovers were more than what was even provided in the first place. But it's not enough for them, right? So they bring up this manna in the wilderness, which is essentially a way for them to say, okay, Prove to us that you're greater than Moses, right? Moses was able to feed us daily. Like we would come, our people would get up in the morning. There was fresh manna on the ground in the evening. There were these quails. So when he led us in in the wilderness, he provided daily nourishment from heaven to feed us. Now listen, they don't need more verification. They don't need additional signs. What they need to do is respond in faith to the sign that's already been given to them. They, it's almost like they've just forgotten that that's even there. And their request exposes their true motives. This is a not-so-subtle demand uh, when they bring up this wilderness manna. Uh, they don't really want to put their faith in Jesus. What they want is what Jesus can give them. 
What they want is Jesus to become uh, this benefactor and just provide for them every day so that they just don't have to worry about their daily needs. They don't, they don't want to have to have you know, daily dependence on God. They just kind of want it all figured out for him, for them. They don't want Jesus. They want what Jesus can give them. Not only do they want to be physically fed right now, remember they asked for Jesus to do it again, when bringing up the manna in the wilderness, which was a daily thing, they're going, hey, better than that, why don't you do this every single day? That would be great. Jesus answered them. Verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So then they said, well, sir, give us this bread always. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's correcting their theology because what you believe determines your behavior and your, the sum total of your belief and behaviors ultimately determine who you become. That's why what we believe is so critical. Andrew Wilson explains what Jesus is saying really well. He's saying, Listen, Jesus, it wasn't Moses who gave you heavenly bread to you, Israel. It was my Father who gives the true bread from heaven to the world. He says in one sentence, Jesus reframes the giver, the gift, the time scale, and its scope. How glorious. What Jesus is saying is, listen, you guys thought Moses provided the bread? No, no, no. It was God the Father who provided the manna, and it wasn't just bread. It was meant, it was another sign to point you to the true bread from heaven, the bread of God, the one who comes down to heaven to give life to the world. Jesus is saying, you didn't work to receive the manna that came from heaven. It was a daily gift to be received, and it was meant to prepare you, to to teach you, to train you, to be a, a receptive, grateful people, to be looking for God's greater gift the bread of heaven, who would come to give life to the whole world. And right there is an inherent choice to be made. You can either have the bread of labor or you can have the bread of life. The bread of labor on this side is that bread that you work for that perishes and never satisfies. It's the the bread of contract where you say, God, I'll do my part, and now you're obligated to do yours. This bread is served on this table of labor where you strive and never achieve, where you're constantly wondering, do I measure up? Have I done enough to earn my seat at this table? Or on the other hand, you have the bread of life, the bread you receive as a gift that never perishes and always satisfies. It's the bread of covenant that beautiful word in the Bible that talks about relationship with God, where we're motivated by love and delight, not duty and obligation. At the table of labor, it's duty and obligation. At the table of grace, it's love and delight. You're welcomed as a son and daughter, never having to wonder, do I measure up? Because the Father has set his love on you. The bread of life is served at the table of grace, where you're loved and accepted as a son and daughter of God simply to enjoy the meal that God provides. It's one or the other, the table of labor or the table of grace, the bread that perishes or the bread of life. The eternal bread, it's eternal, not perishable. It's also given, not earned. Now, let's see the last point. As Jesus says, the bread of life is a person 
and not a program. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, what Jesus has been alluding to before, this true bread from heaven, this bread of God, he's now going to bring it all into laser, laser focus and go, hey, if you haven't gotten it yet, I'm talking about me. I am the bread of life. What he's been alluding to is now plain that Jesus is the bread of God. He is the true bread from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. You notice he's not pointing to some program. He's not pointing to some system that God has created and said, it, there's an invitation for you to jump into this program and to participate. No, Jesus is saying, if you want the true bread, it's me. It's a person, not a program. It's, a, uh, it's not a program to perform. It's a person to know, love, and follow. This is the first of seven I am statements in John. He is going to go on to, 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 uh, to, to unpack these in the course of his gospel. And every one of them holds deep theological significance because they tell us who Jesus is and why we need him. Here he says, everyone who hungers needs the bread of life. Everyone in John 8, 12, who is walking in darkness, needs the light of the world. John 10, he's going to say, everyone who wants to enter into the fold of God will need the gate, the true door. Everyone who wants protection and care is going to need the good shepherd. Everyone who wants to overcome death will need the resurrection and the life. Everyone who wants a life of meaning and purpose is going to need the way, the truth, and the life. And everyone who wants to grow Everyone who wants to produce fruit is going to need the true vine. Do you see that? All of our needs are found in Jesus. Now, these are bold claims. Like if I got up here and started making those claims, you should have me uh, 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 committed to an institution because I've got some maniacal messiah complex, right? It would be, we'd be, we'd be uh, participating in a cult, not a church. But Jesus makes these bold claims, and if they're false, Jesus is a liar. He's a charlatan. He's a peddler of false hope who should be scorned and not worshiped. But if they're true, if the things Jesus is saying are actually true, then Jesus is Lord, and he's the only one who can give us hope, and he should be followed and worshiped. See, Jesus, unlike other world leaders and other world religions, doesn't point to some program to follow. He points to himself. He doesn't point to something outside of himself that they need to receive. He doesn't say, hey, there's enlightenment out there, and if you follow this pathway, you might get to it. No, he says, I am light. I am the light of the world. He doesn't say, hey, if you do these good things, you'll measure up and then you have a chance of overcoming death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you want life, you need me. Jesus doesn't point to something outside of himself. He points to himself. He's saying, everything I'm doing is not pointing to something out there. It's pointing to me. You need to look at me. Just like bread nourishes your body. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life that will nourish your soul. Jesus satisfies all who come to him in their hunger. Or another way to say it, Christ becomes our bread. Christ fills us 
when we come to him hungry. See, if you're already filled with something else, then when someone offers you a meal, you say no. You don't need it. You're not actually hungry. But in your hunger, you will feast on the bread that is provided. Jesus is saying all the breads of this world will ultimately leave you dissatisfied. The inner longings of the soul will ultimately never be satisfied by the bread of this world. But when Jesus becomes your bread, your soul will be nourished and satisfied. See, our world can offer every form of material, physical, emotional, and even spiritual substitutes to try to bring lasting satisfaction. But ultimately, they never satisfy. No drug, no car, no job, no relationship, no home, no dollar in your bank account. Nothing can fill the inner emptiness of the human heart. Nothing can. Nothing of this world can offer satisfaction except the bread of life, the true bread that comes from heaven. And this bread of life is a person, and his name is Jesus. Friends, don't look anywhere else for satisfaction. Now let's look further at Jesus' explanation in verse 36. But Jesus says, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. See, Jesus says, you've seen me. You've seen the signs. I've I've been with you, and yet you've not received me. You've received the the bread I've given you, but you've not received the bread of life. D.A. Carson writes this. The crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. They're curious. They think he might be a good king, but that's not enough. These next four verses are dense and often misunderstood. But friends, don't merely be curious about Jesus. Don't merely go, he might be a good moral leader. You need to look at him as the bread of life. And we're gonna go slow as we unpack these verses so that we can follow the logic of Jesus. Verse 37, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Okay, so here's what he just said. The Father gives to the Son, who is Jesus, a group of people. The Jesus, Jesus receives the Father's gift, this group of people, and he does not turn them away. That's what verse 37 says. The Father gives to the Son a group of people. This gift, Jesus receives, and he does not turn them away. He does not cast them out. Then he says this, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. What Jesus is saying is there is the father and the son are unified in the purpose and mission. So the father's not doing his own thing. The son isn't doing his own thing. He's saying we are working together. We're unified. And this is the will of him, verse 39, who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that which he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Okay, remember, the father gives to the son a gift, a group of people. And Jesus says, I receive that gift and I don't cast them out. So if your first fear is Jesus is gonna reject you, what did he just say? I will not cast them out. And then if our other fear is, well, maybe Jesus is gonna lose me. What does he say? I will lose none that the father has given me. So our greatest fears of being rejected or lost, Jesus is saying, you can trust me. I won't cast you away and I will not 
lose you. Jesus does not lose a single person that the Father gives to them. That should be a warm blanket on a cold night. Every one of them, every one that the Father gives the Son will be raised up on the last day. Every single person that Jesus receives will pass from death to life through the resurrection. You will be raised up on that last day. Jesus doesn't cast you out and he does not lose you. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I, Jesus, will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who believes in Jesus will overcome death and experience the ever-increasing joy that comes with eternal life. So if I could recap those four verses, Jesus says, the Father gives to the Son a gift, and that gift is a group of people. Jesus receives that gift, that group of people, and, and they look to the Son for their very life. And by grace, through faith, every one of them, none of them are cast out, none of them are lost. Every one that Jesus receives, he preserves and allows to persevere to the end so that they overcome death and experience the gift of ever-increasing joy that never ends. Now, based on your disposition, based on your heart, you'll either receive that as the glorious gift that it is, or you'll go, wait a minute. I thought I brought myself to God. The self-sufficient, the self-made person is tempted to downplay Jesus's words here. We want to believe that the bread of life is a program based on my performance, not a person who gives us life. We want to believe that we bring ourselves to God and that God says, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. I've got this nice pathway to life and I want you to participate in it so that you make it to the end. Jesus will be there high-fiving you along the way. That's what we want to believe. And then based on our performance, we either make it to the end or we don't. The only problem with that sentiment is the Bible. Jesus' words shatter that mindset. Jesus, listen to me, did not come from heaven to make redemption merely possible. He came to make it a certainty. Did you hear that? I don't reject any that the Father gives me, and I don't lose any of them. That's certainty. Did you hear about your performance in any of that? Not one bit. All, the only place you showed up in that was as a gift from the Father to the Son. He came to make it a certainty. And these last few verses combine everything we've seen so far, that the bread of life is eternal. It's a gift, and it's found in Jesus. Jesus has said nothing about your moral performance. He hasn't said anything about some participation in a program that leads to salvation. He has been really clear. The Father gives to the Son. The Son is who saves. He preserves. He protects we are entrusted to him. We are merely recipients of God's gracious initiative and his powerful salvation. If you um, are the self-made person, the self-righteous person, you'll hear that and it'll be, you'll scorn it because you'll think, I bring myself to God. But it's the father who gathers his gift to give to the son. It's the son who receives the gift and perseveres so that all Make it to the end. But 
to those who recognize I am ill-deserving. I don't deserve any of this. I'm actually undeserving. I should not be a recipient of such grace. To the one who recognizes they bring nothing to the table, that apart from grace they're ruined, those who say Jesus is my only hope, what they find is that Jesus is the only hope they need. That God is so rich in mercy and love, he chooses us who are unlovable. He chooses the unlovely and sets his love on us, thereby making us lovely. So the proud, the self-sufficient, the self-made, this seems like a patronizing handout. And some may be thinking, well, pastor, how does the father decide who he gives to the son? Here's my best theological answer. I've worked on it all week. You ready for it? I have no idea. You know why I don't have any idea? Because the Bible gives no inkling of a hint. Jesus mentions nothing about that. I've read the whole Bible many times. It gives no inkling of the Father's rubric of how he chooses this gift to give to Jesus. And so instead of speculating on it, we just go, Lord, I receive it as a mystery. I don't know. What's my responsibility? Here it is. Look to the Son. Now some will go, well, does that negate human responsibility? Of course not. The Bible is filled with passages that speak to the Father's sovereignty and his act and his gracious initiative and then our responsibility to believe. It's both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Jesus says we are responsible to look to the Son and believe in him. God initiates, we respond. You are not invited into a program to follow, but into a relationship with a person. God's grace doesn't get you into the program and then say, hey, you've made it, good luck keeping up. No, it's better than that. The same grace that initiates the invitation to us, the same grace that invites us in is the same grace that perseveres so that we do not get lost or we do not get cast out. Our faith is not in a program. It's in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jared Wilson writes this. If you look to Jesus, the bread of life, and you ask him to satisfy your hunger, he will not give you a stone. He will give you himself. So let's stop begging for signs and start beholding Jesus. There is one great sign that you are loved more than you thought. It is the cross. If you're looking, how do I know that God loves me? The cross is God's sign that you are loved beyond what you can imagine. And there is further still a sign that you will live in this life, in this love forever. It is the empty tomb. How do I know that I will overcome, de overcome death? The sign is the empty tomb. Because there's an empty grave, Christ has defeated death, and that's how you and I know. So he, he finishes this. Come, you who hunger, bring your nothingness and trade it for the abundant wine and bread of Christ. Friends, are you hungry for something that will truly satisfy? If you are, why labor for bread that perishes? Why labor for bread that never satisfies Aren't you tired of coming to that table of labor? Aren't you exhausted? Aren't you unfulfilled? Why tell yourself? Why believe the lie that you know what you need more than the one who has created you and knows your deepest needs better than you know them yourself? 
seven mile, let's come to the table of grace, not as laborers, not who have earned our way, but as sons and daughters where the bread of life can feed us all. Let's pray.